Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Front and center, though, are those tariffs that are set to come from the United States of America. President Trump deciding to impose new tariffs of 25% on imports of steel. Elsewhere, you may see 10% on imports of aluminum. The president out this morning swinging when a country is losing many billions of dollars on trade with virtually every country it does business with. Trade wars are good and easy to win. That's the message coming from the President of the United States over Twitter this morning. To discuss, Chad Bound, Peterson Institute for International Economics, a senior fellow there, and Enda Curran, I'm pleased to say, staying up late in Asia for us, our Bloomberg Chief Asia Economics Correspondent. Chad, let's just begin with this and begin with a story that you've written on the Washington Post and pointing out quite rightly what the Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross has concluded. It's that imports of steel and aluminum threaten America's national security. How do they threaten America's national security, Chad? Well, I I think it's a really big argument that they do actually pose a threat to American national security. Most of the steel and the aluminum that the United States imports uh, are from key ally countries, Canada, uh, Europe, Mexico. There's still considerable domestic steel production, especially in the United States. So this is very much looked upon as a, as a relatively bogus argument for implementing import protection. And you really only go down this path when you run out of all other uh, potential explanations for why you would want to impose tariffs. And the current, what's the response in China so far? Actually, the response has been a little bit more subdued than you would have thought, Jonathan. That's to your speaker's previous point. There's this, a sense in Asia that it hurts U.S. allies more than China. We've had complaints from South Korea, Japan, Australia. Japan, in fact, had to remind the U.S. that they are not a threat to American national security. China's foreign ministry in Beijing did say they want America to play by the rules. But interestingly, our colleagues in Beijing have reported that Liu He, who is the top Chinese economic emissary who's in Washington, has presented the U.S. officials with a set of demands, one of which includes... Give me a list in terms of what you want. So the Chinese are seeking clarity from the US in terms of what kind of trade concessions they want. I think that's why the response has been relatively muted so far. They're probably trying to see how these talks in Washington play out. Chad, Ender brings up a brilliant point. It's a point that a lot of people are making. If this is to address China, then it doesn't really do that in isolation at all, does it? It hurts allies probably more than it hurts China. What would be the best way of really recalibrating this policy to direct it specifically at the problem, at least for what the administration sees as the problem. No, that's exactly right. The United States already has tremendous import restrictions already in place on steel and aluminum from China. And what that means is most of what we import comes from allies. And therefore, if we're going to impose tariffs, the allies are the ones that are going to get hit. To my mind, what you need to do to address the underlying problem of this story, which is overcapacity in steel and aluminum coming out of China, you need to engage with the American allies that are suffering the same sorts of problems. We've already seen the Europeans uh, announce that they're probably going to have to impose the same set of import restrictions that the United States is, but under a conventional law, not this bogus national security argument, but under a standard 
safeguard law for imposing trade barriers. You need the kind of cooperation between these countries, and that's what the Trump administration is really undermining by choosing this sort of path. Andrew, I just wonder how this has been taken in Asia at the moment. You've said that the reaction from China has actually been quite subdued. Hmm. I wonder how this is being seen, because many people are asking whether this is the first shot of the beginning of a trade war. Is that how you see things in Asia looking into the United States at the moment? Jonathan, if you think about it, it, there's a bit of a trend emerging here. It appears that Mr. Trump is hurting his allies more than China. We had the US exiting from TPP. That bolstered China's position in the region. We had the US slapping uh, tariffs on washing machines. That hurt allies such as South Korea. And now we have this move on steel, which has people from Australia to Tokyo asking, hang on a sec, this is not about us. So there's a real sense of unpredictability uh, unpredictability about where this is heading. And I think the real danger is who starts to retaliate when and how and in particular, the next step is if Mr. Trump goes after much broader merchandise goods out of China, like electronics goods, textiles, um, shoes, footwear and the like, then we're starting to head down a very difficult road where you likely would see China retaliate and retaliate hard. Chad, I was thunderstruck by the president's follow-on tweet this morning. To be clear, folks, it's a zero-sum America. And Chad Bound, I would say out of your studies at Wisconsin and your work at Bucknell and Peterson Institute, he wants a mercantilist America. Am I off the mark? No, you're, you're, you're exactly right, Tom. What President Trump still unfortunately does not understand is that international trade is not zero-sum. It's a win-win situation if you keep markets open. And But this path that he's heading us down uh, is really taking us away from what the American experience, American leadership in developing an international system of cooperation, of open markets, is now going to potentially result in U.S. exporters in right. areas that have nothing to do with steel and aluminum getting caught up in this and getting retaliated right. against. You and I staggered through Jacob Viner, who, folks, invented the courage to not be mercantilist coming out of World War II. Studies in the theory of international trade was something everybody had to read at gunpoint. Is Trump mercantilism different than the mercantilism that Jacob Viner fought against in the 1930s? Um, I'm not sure how different it is. It is equally worrisome. You know, he seems solely focused on uh, bilateral trade deficits and, and seeming that he can use, and seemingly thinking that he can use trade policy to tackle those. The administration has recognized that steel and aluminum overcapacity is a problem. It's really just the approach they're choosing to tackle it by inflaming tensions with all of our key allies and trading partners with which we need to have a partnership to engage with China on this issue. He's really undercutting his own efforts uh, at trying to get something done. Chad, as you've mentioned and others have touched on, downstream in the United States of America in terms of end usage of steel is a whole lot bigger in this economy than upstream. The steel producers, the steel users, the automakers, the likes of the brewery companies as well. It's massive. Whether you save some jobs in steel, how much damage could be done downstream? That is another really, really big concern. There are so many more, uh, you know, consuming industry jobs, whether you're talking about automobiles or infrastructure, construction, that are all going to be hurt by the fact that input costs are now going to be so much higher with these steel and and aluminum tariffs. That's going to be lost jobs as well. Uh, And so, you know, to the extent that that's an additional source of, of political concern for the president. You would hope that this would weigh in on, on his decision-making, but it doesn't mm-hmm. seem to have resonated with him so far. Chad Bound, thank you for the early morning conversation with the Peterson Institute. No doubt Adam Posen and company will be writing up a storm on this. 
we continue now uh, with our coverage of these momentous times of a mercantilist policy out of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. And to give us perspective in a gentleman who understands the astronomy of our political economics, Mark Chandler, not only at Brown Brothers Harriman, where he puts out important notes on currency dynamics, but he also writes books that fill in our political economics and our economic history. Mark Chandler, can the president of the United States see the stars of our greater political economy? Yeah, good question. I'm not so sure, but I'm not so sure that I would go with that. This is a necessarily uh, a little break from the past. Remember, we had a President George Bush who put a 30% tariff on yes. steel. And so I think that almost every U.S. president uh, that I could think of has put on some kind of protectionism, some kind of tariffs that can get challenged. And this is, I think, the important thing is why I don't think that we're really at the, at the necessarily headed for a trade war. How did countries respond to Bush's 30% tariff on steel. They right did not have a tit- nope, they didn't. They, they didn't go for a tit-for-tat strategy. That is, a current, that is a trade war. What they did was they appealed. They took the U.S. to the WTO. The U.S. lost the case in the WTO and had to rescind the tariffs. This is what I think countries are going to do. They're not okay. going to be a tit-for-tat strategy, but support the multilateral trading system. The distinction, Mark Chandler, starting last evening into the morning, and Paul Krugman, the laureate, mentioning it as well, but conservatives as well, is this national security distinction that has that has Secretary uh, Mattis so upset as well? George Bush didn't make this a natural national security issue, did he? Now, that's, a, that's a very important point. That's an important distinction here. But what happens, I think, is that so we make we the U.S. makes this claim we're going to protect these industries for national security grounds. This has to be tested in a court of law, and that is in the WTO. And with the WTO, I think if I was going to be on the side of Canada and Europe and Japan and yeah. Korea, what I would say would be my first piece of evidence would be exactly what you say. That is, the Defense Department in the U.S. says that they do not want these tariffs. So they, the Defense Department, are either being derelict in their duties or it's not for national security. Here's a question for you. Does this administration respect the WTO? Well, I, I think that it's an interesting question, and of course, the Trump administration has oh, been come very ambivalent about Mark, it. Oh, come on, they don't, but, right? No, but I'd say I'd say this though: that the, pre- the U.S. cannot, the president cannot unilaterally withdraw from the WTO. This is a Congress, and this is the next step that's going to happen. Just like Congress has limited the president's power to repeal sanctions on Russia and Iran, yeah. Congress is talk. Congress can take some actions to reduce the president's unilateral power on trade. Are they going to do that? I th- well, I think it. De- I think it depends on what happens. But I think that give me. Let, let me tell me the outcome of November's elections, and I think that the better. Well, let's just take a step back. November. Secretary Mattis has made it pretty clear. I understand from within the White House. Likewise with Secretary Tillerson. Likewise with Gary Cohn. They didn't want to see this. We're seeing it. So what's stopping us from seeing the next things play out? Well, I think, yeah, so what's the next step of play out? Some people are talking about some resignations coming, which would seem to me to surrender the levers of power to exactly the protectionists that are also in the White House and in the, in the administration. So I'm not sure how it's going to play out. It could be some resignations, but it also is a shift of power in the administration. Uh, I'm, but I'm not, I'm, again, my, my point is that this does not necessarily have to be, trigger a trade war if it's not tit for tat. It's not necessarily going to stand up at the WTO. And I'm not convinced that the inflationary nature of it, you know, people are talking about this, yeah. it's going to be boosting inflation. But I think what happens if we, if we do get rising prices, which there's a quote uh, from General Motors, a guy who is the, one of the buyers, saying that yeah. GM and Ford sourced 90% right. of their steel 
and aluminum in the U.S. Okay, but Mark, I, I think the literature in the last 18 hours clearly agrees with Mark Chandler that inflation delta is not the big issue here. But within the model, our international Mundell Fleming blah, blah, blah model, it goes over to economic growth. Can you suggest that if we don't see the impulse in inflation, we will see it over two and five years in diminished economic growth because of retaliation? Well, yeah, again, I'm, I'm not convinced that there's going to be retaliation like there wasn't for, against George Bush. But I do agree with you that this is, a, to me, the biggest challenge of the world trading system is not this, these tariffs. The biggest challenge that the U.S. is really having to the global trading system is not is really blocking the appointment of judges to these conflict resolution mechanisms at the WTO. That, to me, is a much more serious case. That, the, that countries, you know, the U.S. and Canada are the biggest trading partners in the world, and there's always little disputes and frictions. This is part of trade. What we want is a strong conflict resolution mechanism. As long as that's strong, the global free trade system can be resilient. Flows are going to s- slow down, Mark. I think that's the opinion of a lot of people. And, and we can look beneath the surface, away from these headline things about tariffs, and just look at CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. They are looking at inbound investment coming from places like China. They may well change this and develop the role of CFIUS to actually look at outbound investment. So companies in the United States looking to invest in China may well have to get things approved by CFIUS as well. There are things happening in the background here beyond just tariffs that make this a more protectionist administration. Oh, for sure. I, I, I'm not saying that it's not. I'm just thinking that the system of checks and balances and resiliency of the global system and of our own checks and balances within the U.S. are more resilient than, than what a president can do in the first 18 months in office. Big question. Emerging markets FX, when President Donald Trump was elected, got battered. Then it ripped. Do we need to actually have another look at this? Is this an inflection point or not, Mark, for you, for emerging market currencies? Don't think it is. I think that more important for the for for the emerging market currencies it doesn't seem like Fed policy is the key. It seems like global growth is the key. And I think for me that's a concern. Latest data, not only from the U.S. Uh, but from Europe, from Japan, is showing that maybe that strong core, strong momentum we had in this uh, synchronized global upturn <clears throat> might have peaked at the end of last yeah. year. Okay, Mark, this is all a bunch of fancy eco babble. Should I initiate strong yen trades this morning? I think it's a bit late to the party, but I'd be watching this 105 level. I mean, we've come down, right? We've come down to almost 108. I think we're yeah. 107.70 on Monday. We, we've been you, you're missing the point, Mark. Number. Tom and I sell bottoms. We buy tops. Yeah. That's, that's what we do. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, you've got to understand. You know how, you know, how, like John Farrow has a Grand Banks 48. I've got a Grand Banks 16. It's a dinghy. And the name of the boat is called Late to the Party. John, <laughs> say Mark Chandler, if it's not the haven bit that drives the Japanese yen story forward from here, how important were the comments from Governor Kuroda about an exit from stimulus next year? Yeah, I think that's what surprises me, right? So Kuroda says, we're not changing policy now, even though we've, stopped, we've slowed down our asset purchases. And we're not even going to talk about an exit until next April. And the market responded almost like it was this April. I think that uh, the market is getting ahead of itself. And I think that the reason that the BOJ might talk about it next April but probably won't do anything is because next October, October 2019, the Japanese are going to put in a high, the retail sales tax from 8 to 10%. And whenever Japan has played around with the retail sales tax, yeah. it's driven the economy down. I mean, that's a really important insight. What are the ramifications, if even if you don't think we'll get there, if we get to a 
strong yen print. I mean, that's five figures away. Yeah, I think that, I mean, which isn't uh, not completely like lost, right? I mean, it's not completely like, impossible to see that. And I think that uh, have people really adjust hedge ratios. And, and another question that happens is if the dollar is falling like this, we've got this protectionist sentiment growing, will people still fund the U.S. growing current account deficit? Mark Chandler, stay with us, please. Mark Chandler with us with Brown Brothers Harriman. Really important depth. I can't say enough about uh, Mr. Chandler's books, uh, particularly on uh, uh, the, the template of the astronomy of our global political economy. We bring in now Francine Lacroix, who is in Rome on a Roman holiday uh, through the weekend. But then Francine, a very, very important Sunday morning. How do they vote in Italy? Is it is it by paper ballot? Is it a modern digital system? What's the process that begins Sunday morning? Good morning, Tom. It is definitely by paper ballot. It's actually very old school. You're, you find yourself in a booth, and this time you have between seven and eight parties that you have to choose. Now, remember, Tom, this is also new electoral law, so you could argue that this is the first time that the Italian economy tests its engine. So you don't really know how it will plan out. Part of the electoral law is a proportionate system. Part of it is direct. So it actually makes things a little bit more complicated because it's very difficult to look at the polls, which by the way, we can't talk about, but it's very uh, kind of difficult at this point to see whether, you know, the coalition could actually be formed depending on how much the parties get. Will weather play into the election? I'm watching a plane actually land in the heavy winds of Washington. Air Force One uh, is off in the distance. And really from Washington to uh, Maine, we have extraordinary weather. You saw that in London. How is the weather in across Italy? Um, it's a little bit better, Tom. We had very high winds today, and you're right, weather always plays a part in the turnout. Mm-hmm. But even before the weather concerns and east from the beast, which has touched Italy about five, six days yeah. ago, there was a, a lot of concern about very low voter turnouts. And Tom, to put it very simply, there is a concern that basically, although the European economy bringing Italy with it is getting better, right. the Italians are just not benefiting from this broadening recovery. Francine Lacroix in Rome. I don't know, Francine, if you were able to hear Prime Minister May's important comments at Mansion House. I would note, Francine, that she is uh, garbed in black today. What is Prime Minister May mourning if she gives us an update on Brexit theory? I mean, I, you know, she may be mourning the rebels on both sides. Tom, yeah. she has a very tough task. On the one hand, she needs to deal with the Commissioner Juncker and Commissioner Barnier. On the other hand, she has to placate her rebels that are pro-Brexit and the ones that are pro-Remain. So I, I think uh, maybe, you know, all black all around makes sense for a top prime minister going yeah. through tumultuous times. What have you heard in Italy about the discussion of the president of the United States on mercantilist theory? I know it's the talk everywhere worldwide. The prime minister actually making comments oh, two hours ago or so. Futures improving, folks. We were negative 270. We're now negative 181, a better tape in the last 20 minutes. But Francine, what have you heard from your guests and off mic in Italy on uh, mercantilism and American trade? 
Well, Tom, Italy is worried. A lot of Italian politicians are worried. A lot of Italian CEOs are worried. Remember, this is an economy that grew 1.5% last year, but it's mainly thanks to exports, and a lot of these exports go to the U.S. Now, the most percentage-wise actually goes within the European Union. So a lot of the chief executives that I was speaking to were saying, look, it's not good for world trade because if it has an impact on GDP, it will also bring back the recovery yeah. of Italy. Uh, they're concerned about exports to the U.S., but, you know, as long as the European bloc stays together, Italy will, you know, weather the uh, trade war storm. Francine Lacroix, thank you so much. Of course, safe travels. Have a great Roman holiday in uh, uh, Rome for the elections. Uh, this is what gives us goosebumps here at Bloomberg Surveillance when we have guests of esteem and always of controversy who really make an effort to join us on historic days like today. Jeffrey Sachs is at Columbia University. He has been way out front on the dumbing down of America. He has been way out front on any debate of climate change, whether you agree or disagree with him. But far more is his foundation of international economics. Uh, he is again at Columbia uh, University and joins us from Bogota, Colombia uh, this morning. Professor Sachs, thank you so much for the effort to join us um, this morning. 20 years ago, you wrote two essays for foreign policy. One was A Brief History of Panic, and the other was Unlocking the Mysteries of Globalization. Is President Trump's trade action his effort and a good effort against the new globalization? This is uh, one of the most reckless policies, Tom, uh, one can imagine, and it is going to have major adverse uh, reverberations, as it is around the world. Uh, we probably shed maybe a, a trillion dollars of uh, stock market capitalization in the last 24 hours. That is a pretty good sign of uh, market sentiment uh, and the view of uh, what Trump has done. He's smashing the global trade rules, and um, it's very, very dangerous. We have done a little bit of the history, Professor Sachs, the history that you're expert in this morning, going back to the courage of Sir Robert Peel and the Corn Laws of 1842, call it Nixon's effort in 1971 on a 10% import tax. Let's go to Nixon. What did Jeff Sachs learn in studying the Nixon tariffs of the early 70s? Well, when uh, Nixon uh, uh, not only uh, raised the tariffs, but uh, broke the Bretton Woods uh, exchange rate system unilaterally, it led to a, a decade of uh, chaos. Uh, and uh, I would go back to uh, 1930, in fact, Tom, uh, and you know the history well of the Holly Smoot tariff of uh, July 1930. That was uh, another unilateral U.S. action, uh, a smash in the face of uh, world trade, and it had devastating consequences for pushing us uh, deeper into what became depression, prolonging the Great Depression, uh, intensifying it. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying that that's the inevitable consequence of this dumb move of, of, uh, of uh, Trump. But this is a dumb, dangerous, reckless 
move, and it's based on it's based on a level of economic uh, illiteracy that is absolutely shocking, and that is shown by his uh, morning tweets. Uh, he really believes that if you are running a trade deficit, it means that you're being swindled by the surplus countries. It's a kind of uh, it's a kind of illiteracy you can't even imagine uh, that is now a view held by this confused man who happens to be president of the United States. And then he tweets this morning that. A, a trade war is the simplest thing in the world to win, because he also views everything as winners and losers, whereas trade is about win-win, and closing trade is about lose-lose. Yeah. So I'm, I'm astounded, Tom, that we don't have uh, any institutional break right now. Uh, I would expect, and I would... Uh, well, we'll see. I would expect people like Gary Cohen to leave the White House because this is right. really want to be associated <clears throat> well, on that uh, with this kind of shocking uh, behavior. On that note, let me bring in my colleague, Pim Fox, well, Prof- Jeffrey Sachs of yeah, Columbia. Yeah, Professor Sachs, uh, just to play devil's mm-hmm. advocate here, is it possible that this is uh, part and parcel of a negotiating tactic and that what uh, tariffs can be imposed, tariffs can be removed, and that there will be uh, further negotiations that we don't know about, but that this is a new tactic in the way that uh, the administration is indeed dealing with what it perceives to be unfair trade practices uh, against the United States? Well, I know what it perceives to be unfair trade practices. Donald Trump thinks, as he even wrote this morning, since we're running a trade deficit against nearly everybody, we must be being cheated by nearly everybody. But it's a kind of, duh, uh, why are we running a trade deficit against everybody? Well, that's because we don't save in our country. We have a saving investment deficit. Uh, we borrow from the rest of the world. And um, his very way of posing the question exposes the silliness of it, as if every country that we run a bilateral trade deficit is somehow doing us wrong. He, he just doesn't get it. Uh, maybe it won't spiral out of control, though, uh, and, and China has been extremely mature in its response which is just to say we hope the U.S. does not undermine the international trade rules. The European Union was uh, far more direct, saying uh, that there will, of course, have to be retaliation uh, and that this is uh, outrageous. Uh, Many others have noted that it is a complete break of post-World War II practice to invoke national security to slam against the international trade rules. So the answer, Tim, is... Yes, maybe it won't be so bad in the end because some grown-up someplace will uh, turn this off. But not because there's anything clever in this, just because this is an idiotic move that is uh, very dangerous and and may get tamped down. Because most of his advisors are, are telling him that this is a dangerous well, move. That, that is Most tr- of the Republican most, Congress is right. telling him that this is a dangerous move. Okay, Jeff Sachs, thank you so much. We really appreciate it from Bogota, Colombia uh, this morning.
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.